The reading of the scriptures from Isaiah chapter 53, reading verses 10 to 12. Uh, So I invite your uh, reverential attention and hearing of God's word, and may we uh, read and hear in faith. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Our uh, culture is uh, one that uh, worships uh, success. Uh, mindful of this in uh, present-day Olympics, uh, we, we, we all look at the, the nations who've won the most medals, uh, particularly the gold medal, pinnacle of success. And uh, if it's not that, it's uh, the golf tournament, uh, the basketball tournaments. Uh, we worship success uh, for those who excel in business. Uh, they're members of the Forbes 400, and on and on it goes. Uh, we, again, are attracted to worldly success. Uh, but I would commend to you the reality that the greatest event of all time has secured for us the greatest success of all time, and that is in the passage uh, before us this morning. What is remarkable about the success accomplished by our Savior it is that it is not the success of opportunities. It's the success of total, final accomplishment. In that sense, I would commend to you the reality that it is the greatest success story of all time. Because it is here that the Father rewards the Son for becoming the price of redemption to cure forever the liability of his people before an eternal and holy God. And what is, again, even more remarkable than his success is that His success becomes our success, for when you are in him, uh, you are cured uh, for all time, Uh, not only spiritually, but ultimately physically uh, in his coming. Our text begins in the first part of the 10th verse, obviously, uh, but it also ends in the last part of the 12th verse with a recapitulation of the nature uh, of our Lord's atonement. Conceptually, uh, that fact uh, formed two bookends uh, that really drive us to the middle of uh, the final portion of the servant song that again heralds the success of our Lord. But it is our reminder that He took our place and He shed His blood to satisfy the wrath that we deserve. Again, remarkable success. Uh, We read, uh, beginning again, verse 10, that God was pleased. The New American Standard uh, uh, says that uh, uh, 
the Father also made him to suffer grief, but uh, initially it is that God crushed him. Uh, speaking to the violence of the cross uh, and, of course, uh, the violence of the punishment that he underwent. Because everything that sin means before a holy and righteous God. We take those things lightly in our culture, but they're not taken lightly by an eternal, infinite, holy God. And so it pleased God the Father to crush his son uh, for many sons. Uh, Further, he made him sick, uh, that all the miseries of the fall, both physical and spiritual, fell upon the son. We forget that sometimes in the church. Uh, Well, of course, he died for our sins, but he died for the miseries that the fall introduced into the world, incredible miseries. Think, for example, the recent uh, school shooting. What incredible misery that that brought into the lives of the families. Christ died for the miseries of his people, totally. So there is an answer, and the answer is the success of the Son. Uh, that the Lord, the load, pardon me, is crushing uh, him in that regards and highlights his own innocence because he was undeserving. It's part of the weight of the crushing effect of the wrath of God that fell upon the Son. Uh, it's one thing to suffer justly. It's another thing to suffer unjustly. And that God was pleased means that the sacrifice had a greater purpose, the love of God for his people, that the way to redeem and rescue them is at hand in the servant uh, son, that the guilt of his people was uh, put upon the innocent one, and the servant becomes their guilt offering. Uh, It is, as I've uh, attempted to state uh, continually throughout this final servant song, Uh, It is the theology, the entire theology of the book of Leviticus concluding on the perfections of Christ. Uh, Sinners in the book of Leviticus would transfer their guilt to a sacrifice for the payment of uh, their guilt and for release of of liability. Let's look at one such text, uh, just as one among many in Uh, the totality of this book, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 21 and 22. He shall bring a guilt offering to the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. The priest shall also make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin which he has committed, and the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him. much more forward-looking for us because it's not only our past sins, but all of our sins, past, present, and future. If there are some sin for which Christ did not die, then no one is ever saved. Even our future sins. I understand that's controversial in many churches, uh, but it's not here. He died for them all, totally. Full atonement. Everything paid for. Uh, Another reference to this in the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter. A couple of texts here. Uh, The first is uh, the final uh, phrase in the 26th verse. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It has to be all sin or there's no salvation. So he's put away all sin. 
by the sacrifice of himself. Uh, and then if you would look uh, uh, down at the 28th verse. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time, not to bear sin, uh, but to those who eagerly await for him salvation. He put away all sin so that we uh, come awaiting eagerly for the totality of our salvation, the coming of the Lord. But he put it away. It's the point of the text. He was crushed for our transgressions. And the Father is satisfied or pleased with the sacrifice because wrath is removed. It's an incredible uh, sense of what uh, the atonement is for us, a removal of wrath, all wrath. Uh, something of this uh, in the theology of uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, because uh, the motivation is the love of God for his, son, his many sons uh, by pouring wrath on his beloved son. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, in the second verse, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He was the provision of a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God and so described as a fragrant aroma. We, we close again. The theology of the atonement that begins this text concludes this text as a bookend. Uh, latter part of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. He poured out himself to death was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. It begins, he poured out his soul to death. Here is the eternal God-man experiencing an event in his humanity, that which had never been experienced. as an expression of the totality of his sacrifice to die for the sins of his people. Uh, he was the offering who spent himself in service. He is the subject and the content of the action. He identified with sinners and bore the sin of many, carried them away. Penalty is removed and obviated. The church struggles with that concept. We ought not to struggle with it. He took it away uh, in his infinite perfection. First uh, John chapter 3 and verse 5. Apostle writes that he appeared in order to take away sin in its totality. No vestiges left. If you will, a clean slate. Nothing left. And the substitution remarkably here adds something. It's quite remarkable in terms of our understanding of the atonement. Because some of you like many churches, struggle over, what about, my, what about my future sins? They're a terrible thing. Yes, they are. And so in the totality of the atonement, his substitution engages intercession for his people, for the transgressors. Notice the text, and he interceded for the transgressors. That Christ is an eternal priest, an advocate, that is forever the one-time sacrifice that avails permanently because of his perpetual priesthood. Again, let's document this in its fullness, the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7. 
against the age-old question that the church struggles with. What about future sin? We, we get the past. We get the present. What about the future? It cannot be. Someone has to pay for my future sin. That's uh, why many churches hold that future sin can unravel your salvation. I reject that because of the high value of what the atonement secures for us, namely everything, even intercession for future sin. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. He, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, he also is able to save forever those who draw near to him, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It means that, uh, if you will, to use a legal metaphor, uh, we have a permanent defense attorney before the throne of God. Uh, in his death and resurrection, he is always on retainer for his people. If you will, sometimes we call attorneys because we get in trouble. That's, by the way, that's probably a reason to call an attorney if you're in trouble. You know, might by application say you ought to call them before you get in trouble because they can keep you out of trouble. But that's what Christ is for us before the throne of God, our perpetual defense attorney. That there is no sin that could ever unravel us because of the perfections of what he accomplished upon the cross and all that that success means forever. He will always avail successfully because of the permanence of his success and therefore he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, as our defense attorney, he, he even deals with future sin because he paid for all of it on the cross. This, this is the theology, by the way, of 1 John chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The context is the perpetuity of the atonement for recurring sin. That it avails for all sin, past, present, and future. In our case, he is perpetually proclaiming the efficiency of his sacrifice for our sins as our advocate, as our encouragement, and for avoiding complacency. And again, when you and I sin, sometimes we get extremely depressed. Sometimes we get depressed over our past sins. We think, oh, they're just too great. John is saying Christ paid for them all. And therefore, if the Father was satisfied, you ought to be satisfied. I occasionally reread the account of the Lutheran army chaplain who was stationed by the army post-World War II in Spandau Prison to minister to the agents of evil Nazism. A number of those architects of Nazism were Lutherans. And that army chaplain engaged them with the majesty of Christ and their own confession as young children and won them to repentance because of the majesty of forgiveness. But I would remind you, if he could forgive men who engaged in that evil, your sin is probably chump change. The majesty of the totality of the finality of the gift of the Son of God for his people. 
as the satisfaction for sin. It is, of course, his advocacy is to remind us to avoid complacency. You know, it's not like, well, I have an advocate forever, so I can just keep on sinning. No, it's quite the opposite. In light of what he has done and his perpetual advocacy, it should guard us. It doesn't unravel our salvation because we have a perpetual advocate. As a reminder that we should live lives uh, consistent with uh, his grandeur and majesty. This is important because many in the American church contend for a human priesthood that can distribute the spoils of victory. Uh, to me, that's a fabrication because the priesthood of Christ is permanent and perpetual. You cannot supplant the priesthood of Jesus Christ. You cannot elect or choose a human priest because he cannot avail. Human priests are temporal. They're also fallen. Our priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is eternal and unfallen, totally innocent, and his priesthood avails. And yet, I'm, I'm fully aware of the fact that one of the largest churches in the whole world is supplanting the priesthood of Christ with human priests. Perhaps they need to reread the book of Hebrews. Our priest is permanent and therefore can never be supplanted by human priests. And it is the reminder that Christ distributes the spoils of his victory because humans who are fallen uh, cannot engage in such a marvelous act. Again, I'm not denying that the church is a means of grace, but the agent of grace is divine, Christ. And that's why we, uh, we can be profoundly grateful because when he's the divine agent, everything's been paid for. And we can rest in peace in life as well as in death. Second, many in the church, uh, most popular today in the American church, uh, all over the world as well, uh, that you can fall away, but this denigrates his priesthood as permanent and perpetual. Our priest does not go on sabbatical. He doesn't take vacations. He is permanent. He is infinite. He is eternal. He always avails for his people. One time for all time to seal the destiny of his son Quite obvious by way of application, it's the only answer for sin. Uh, you can turn over every rock and all the rocks of religion of the world, and they will all tell you go to the Christian faith in Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer for the people of God. If you're not a Christian, you must go here. Uh, because that is the provision of God, uh, the gift of the Son. I might also add that the language that is here is not contingent upon human action. Rather, it secures our action. That Christ redeems his work is an effectual accomplishment that does not mean redeemability. He doesn't gain for us the success of opportunity. He is the success of total accomplishment. 
Christ did not come to make salvation possible. He came, he was successful, and he saved. And this is how he did it. And lastly, it's particular and does not apply to those who perish eternally because of the majesty of what he did and what was provided for by God the Father. What's the outcome of the atonement? The outcome is total success, final success. Let's look at the text. Isaiah chapter 53 the Father vindicates him and rewards him. But the apparent defeat of the cross is really only an illusion, simply the means to garner the greatest of the success of all time. Uh, I mean, you know the story that his disciples turned away because they thought, well, this, this isn't it, I guess. Uh, maybe Jesus failed. He tried. He gave it at the best he could. But no, he, he's going to succeed. Let's look at the success. First, verse 10. He will see his offspring. In the Old Testament, children were evidence of divine blessing under the Old Covenant. That's why God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, Genesis 15, look at the stars. Look at the constellations. So your sons will be. In in final reality, that's fulfilled in Christ. We know that from the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, for example, verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we're part of the constellation of the sons of God, the stars that are to shine brightly. Incredible number of sons were birthed by Christ. And so he sees his offspring, meaning that uh, it's not going to fail. I mean, obviously, if you are killed, you can sire no more children, but this is a grandeur of a spiritual event of incredible magnitude. Uh, and so he sires the church. Numbers that we cannot imagine because of the singularity of his event and the power of that singular event. Second, Isaiah says he'll prolong his days. How can that happen if he dies? He's going to live again. It's a reference to the resurrection. The death could not hold him. He lives forever. And I would remind you that uh, this is an incredible promise because it sweeps us into the effects of that promise and victory over the grave. Uh, I'm at that age in life where I, I'm going to a lot more funerals. Uh, you rejoice when you go to the funerals of believers because death does not hold them. It's forced to let them go. Spiritually and eventually, even the grave will have to let them go because of an incredible promise that uh, uh, he will prolong his days, that you and I are swept up into that victory. It's like we're the trailing tail of it, uh, that he is uh, risen from the dead, uh, the only shepherd beyond the grave, and a good shepherd for his people, meaning he will rescue us all. The world has no answer to that. 
Only the Christian faith does. Do you want to deal with this most perplexing of philosophical problems? It is the greatest philosophical problem of all of life, the presence of evil and death. And Christ in one event solves it all. Thirdly, God prospered him. Very interesting concept because you and I are caught up in this event as well. If, if he prospered the firstborn, then he is going to prosper the manyborn. This is a word that uh, is used in the introduction to uh, the Psalter as a reminder of, uh, of the child of faith, uh, Psalm uh, chapter 1. I'm sure uh, a psalm that's uh, familiar to all of you. Uh, verse 3, And he will be like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. That's the man of God. That's the firstborn from the dead. Everything that he did prospered. Uh, that he did nothing in his life uh, that cannot be marked with incredible prosperity because of the promise of God. But you and I are swept up in that as well. I mean, of course, you know, in the church sometimes we errantly make this, well, God's going to make me rich. No, God's going to make you spiritually successful. Uh, you know, if you're born in America, you're already rich probably more than 99.9% .9 of the history of civilization. But this is much more than that. That's chump change. We are made spiritually rich, so much so that the treasury of heaven is open to us. And if you will, we plunder it because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We prosper because he prospered for us. It's, a, it's the same reality that you and I uh, uh, partake of uh, this great promise that we sometimes, a verse we oftentimes memorize. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is uh, written in it, for then it will make your way prosperous, and you will have success. Uh, Jesus is the eternal word. We read him we memorize him, we meditate upon him, and he prospers us in all that we do. Our leaf does not wither. We are planted, of course, ultimately in heaven. Uh, a reminder of the grandeur of the Garden of Eden fully restored. Christ prospers us. Fulfillment in a measure by way of application, the psalm of the ideal man, Psalm 8. Dominion over all things was given to the ideal man. Christ is that man. He has dominion over the creation because he conquered the cross. He was successful at the cross. You get dominion when you win. Christ won. And by the way, we get it in him as well because he won it for us. Fourthly, verse 11, he will see it and be satisfied. He didn't see the cross as failure. saw it simply as the path to victory. The text reads, as a result of what he did, the outcome of, or his satisfaction was secured. Again, Isaiah chapter 53. He will see it, be satisfied. 
Why? Because it was totally successful. You know, it's, you know, it's like you have a hobby. And I understand in your hobby, the more you do it, the better you get, but sometimes you have to throw it away, don't you? Well, this was a mistake. Well, I didn't do that correct. I'll throw it away and start over. Christ doesn't have to start over. He was totally successful. He was totally satisfied. Infinite perfection. He only had to do it one time because that's all it takes when you're perfect as the God-man was perfect. Uh, he achieved, if you will, the design of his father. Achieved it. Met the intent of everything that God placed upon him. Not by way of opportunity, but by way of accomplishment. Let's look at some very popular verses. I've shared these uh, quite often going through this series on the servant song. But it is uh, good to be reminded because the church is moving away from these biblical concepts. Uh, my favorite is John chapter 6, verse 37 uh, to 39. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. Uh, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Again, you can see the transaction. It's not based upon our coming. It's based upon the gift of the Father to the Son, and then that secures our coming. Incredible success of the cross. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose none, but will raise him up on the last day. I lose everything that's ever given to me. If I haven't, I'm in the process of it. Christ loses none. That's perfection. That's success. John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. That you and I are caught up in the, and again, the tailwinds of the greatest event of victory of all times. Never perish. It means that the completion of his work in whole and not in part was never in doubt. By application, his perfection obviates supplementation or repetition. Rereading my copy of the Catechism of the Church of Rome, that the Mass is propitiatory. That the Mass is a sacrifice. I was rereading it because I got in a friendly argument with a member of the Church of Rome, reminded him of the perpetuity, the sacrifice of Christ. He said, No, no, that's not how we look at it. So I, I reread the product of the magisterium. That's how they do look at it. That's why they repeat it every Sunday. We don't repeat it, it's not repeatable. You do not repeat perfection. When you repeat perfection, you cast aspersion upon it. I know that's not their intent, but you don't repeat it. You revel in it. You worship Christ. You have no other sacrifice. It obviates repetition. It's incredible. Watching the Olympics, we reminded of, remember the story of the American hockey team, Miracle on Ice. Now we celebrate that victory. What we really ought to celebrate is the victory of the cross. 
the greatest event of all time. Gold medals or chump change, then you and I are caught up in it all. We'll stand on the victory stand with him in the eternities because of the theology that is here. And we ought not to denigrate it either confessionally or in our lives because of what he does for us. Next, he will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Justify the many. Great uh, word that uh, sets us apart from many in the church in America, justification. It was the causative event of the Protestant Reformation that he does not make us righteous. He imputes his righteousness so that we are accepted as righteous in the sight of God. That he gives to us what is his in the righteous one. Freely, graciously, and sovereignly. Therefore, it is a righteousness that is independent and alien to us. If our salvation was in any way dependent upon us, it would eventually unravel. That's why so many American churches hold that you can fall away from grace. In, in other words, they've redefined grace, haven't they? They've also redefined the atonement. They ought to be careful when they do that because they denigrate the success of the righteous one. You cannot undo the victory won by Christ upon the cross and all that it means for his people. The finality of it is incredible because of the victory that it secures for us. Furthermore, the perfections of his sufferings procures our pardon and acceptance by God. And therefore, totally independent upon us, not based upon anything within us or about us, but totally and solely upon his righteousness. It, it is the causative event of our adoption, a legal, another legal event. We're adopted into the family of God legally because of the work of the Son uh, accomplishing of the will of the Father. Uh, it is the reality that the merit of his obedience is the totality of our justification. Uh, interesting, is it not, that the text says the many. Uh, oh, how the church argues over this. Well, let's look at a couple of other verses. And I understand we argue over words like world. To me, it's all men without distinction. It's all men without exception, and everyone's saved. How could everyone be saved? Because of the perfections and the, and the finality and the totality of the work of God upon the cross and his son. He was totally successful. But again, the many is what Isaiah says. Let's, let's look at some other texts, the words of Jesus, if you will. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, the institution, the sacrament of the Lord's table. For this is the blood of the covenant, the new covenant, that he shed his blood to redeem his people, which is shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sin. Many. For what purpose? The forgiveness of sin. All of your sin. Totally, finally, irrevocably. You are forgiven. You be very careful about rehashing the guilt of your past sins over and over and over again. 
because it begins to undermine the, vitali the, the finality of what it means to be forgiven and to walk freely as the sons of God, that I'm free at last because of the cross. Forgiven, it's incredible of what it means, even though there's still uh, future sin in our lives, but even so, we have in Christ the perpetuity of an advocate, always taking up our case that nothing can undermine us. Provokes us, does it not, to live for him. Uh, again, another text. Just trying to deal with my friends who disagree with this theology. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He ransomed us. He set us free. We were slaves, and he manumitted us. And the cause was the cross. We're free. And by the way, we ought not go to go back to our old way of life because he set us free from that. Majesty of the cross, securing us and setting in motion the totality of our redemption. Again, if you say all, then you make it dependent upon us and you have diluted what he did and elevated what we could not do. Apostle Paul, as you might well imagine, alludes to this theology, the theology of Isaiah. Just a couple of texts, Romans uh, chapter 4 and verse 25. In other words, Paul is picking up the theology of Isaiah 53 and saying it's fulfilled in Jesus. He is the servant's son. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Him who was delivered up because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. Again, one other, chapter 5, verse 15. Free gift is not like the transgression, for, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The point of the text is that fulfillment is in Christ and by Christ, and he secured our justification. It, it can never unravel. If it could unravel, then he did not secure a work of perfection upon the cross. The Bible teaches otherwise. We ought to live otherwise in light of what God has taught us. In further acknowledgement of success, God speaks in verse 12. Therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. That Christ is the triumphant victor. We oftentimes say that Christ saves us as our prophet because he is the teacher of the word of God, is our priest because he offers sacrifice of himself to God, but he also saves us as our king because he won the victory for us, that he is the triumphant victor. And by the way, you and I are caught up in that victory, that he defeats our enemies and he distributes the spoils of victory, uh, great text that uh, we've looked at before, but let's look at one last time, at least in terms of the servant song, Matthew chapter 12. Christ has been casting out demons. How is it that he can cast out demons? Because he's sovereign over the spirit world. He's even sovereign over Satan. Sovereign over it all. Well, the Pharisees get in his argument. Well, he's, he can cast out demons because he's in league with the demons, and Christ refutes their argument. And this is his truth line, Matthew chapter 12, and verse 29. 
How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. Christ comes into the kingdom of Satan and plunders his house, gathers all he wants, and leaves with all he wants so that the spoils of his victory are his people. We are released from dominion of Satan, set free. And again, he comes to the kingdom of this world in which Satan is the god of this world, and he kicks the door down, and he goes and gets everything that he wants, and he cannot be denied because of who he is. He is the king. He's the only king. He is the eternal king, and he wins for us our salvation, never to unravel, because then that would cast aspersion upon the majesty of what he did as the eternal king. So again, what Christ did secures the intent and object totally and irrevocably. I would submit to you, it's the greatest success story of all time. To set people free from the dominion of sin. Look at the evil that we confront in this world. I mean, it's one crisis after another, opioid crisis, the crisis of shootings in schools, and on and on, incredible misery and sadness totality of lost and broken lives. Who can fix that? Christ. He did upon the cross. And now he's plundering this kingdom to gather his people. Incredible victory. The church knows it uh, because the majesty of it. Uh, it's the greatest success of all time. Withstanding the success of time and deserving the accolades of all time. And his success is our success. He births his church. He gathers us. He set us free. Manumitted us from slavery and forgave us. He is our perpetual advocate. Uh, we continually need a defense attorney because we're still fallen. He is that attorney, perpetual retainer, if you will. Uh, if you do not know that success, Simply uh, ask you to go to Christ because he's the author of it and the perfecter of it. You can go nowhere else. You must go to him and uh, ask for forgiveness and plead uh, victory of the cross and uh, the majesty of uh, the greatest of all words in the English language, be forgiven forever. May that uh, thought come to own us transform us and perpetually remind us of what it means to be the sons of God.